chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Peter, not 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. The second is the second chapter. Um, Glad you guys are here with us this morning. Obviously, we're going to have communion if you haven't figured that out here in a little bit. And when we get to that point, we'll just remind people how we do communion. Uh, We have the tables up front, so you're going to come and get your own. And if you don't want to touch anything that anyone else has touched, we also have the pre-done ones as well. Um, But anyway, we're going to have that here to kind of end these last two weeks, we, we talked about being holy last week. We we're talking about being these living stones this week. Um, and before I start, I just want to address the question that everyone's been asking me this morning. Who do I think is going to win the football game this afternoon? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care. <laughs> the Buffalo Bills had a first winning season in 27 years. So I, I, I'm happy. I, if they win, great. If they lose, my life will go on. I think the Chiefs are the better team. Uh, I think they have so many weapons. I'm just happy that we're in the game. I, I could really care less who wins. Um, there's, I would have cared a few years ago, but I've grown up some, and there's more to life than the game. So I'm just happy that, that the team gets to play. So if you guys win, you can rub it in my face all you want next week. It's really not going to bother me at all. <laughs> so that's where I'm at with that, because a bunch of you have been asking me. So I know that's like, oh, man, I want to. Rubbing his face, but anyway, um, I'm more in, I more care about this passage. This is, this is actually one of my favorite passages in scriptures. Um, I think I remember the first time I studied First Peter, just the, the, the imagery that's here in chapter two about these the living stones, but more importantly, just that reminder that we are the temple, um, and we're going to see that this morning here, and uh, as we go on in, in these couple verses, that you know we become. As believers, as the Holy Spirit live in us, we literally become the spiritual house. We literally are the temple. We're a holy priesthood. Um, and, and as I studied that, it just it reminded me and empowered me that I have a responsibility to serve. I mean, Scripture is telling me that I'm a spiritual house and I'm a holy priesthood. So I, I can't just say, oh, it's this person's job or it's that person's job or it's the pastor's job or the elders or a missionary. I have a responsibility in that and that God is always working in me. The idea of a living stone, um, just, a, just a huge, beautiful picture. Because, you know, we, obviously stones are hard and they don't move well. And if you want to form them, you have to use a hammer and you have to chisel. And so I'm a stone. I'm hard. I don't move well, but I'm also living. And so God is this author that's just chiseling us away and creating us into his masterpieces, much like Michelangelo and uh, Leonardo and those ancient guys would have done with creating these masterpieces out of marble. And that's exactly what God is doing in our lives. And so, again, I just I love this passage um, so much. And so looking forward to this morning. So that's where we're at. First Peter, chapter two says a living stone and a holy people. So just to carry on of what we talked about last week, this call to be holy, we were we were told to be prepared for action. We were to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on the things of God. We're accountable for our actions. Uh, we're to be obedient to the gospel, to love each other. And again, the only thing that remains is God's word. And so Peter just goes right on. Because again, this was a letter. There was no chapters. There was no verses. This was just one continuous letter. And so he reminds us that the last thought, the word of the good news is what was preached to you. The word of God remains forever. So... So there's that, you know, that's that but, that comma, that and. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
put away. Put away. I wanted to look that word up in the Greek, you know, because like, I don't know about you guys, but like in my house, it's not so bad anymore because the kids got older. But like as when they were little children, we'd say, hey, put away your toys. Well, in our house, that generally meant everything either went under the bed or in the closet. And then we shut the closet and we're like, hey, mom and dad, I cleaned the room. And then mom and dad walk into the room and be like, "Eh, it looks pretty good. And then if you really want to get on your knees, you'd be like, what about under the bed? Or if you dared, you'd open the closet and everything kind of fell out. So maybe that didn't happen in your home. Maybe your kids were perfect, um, but my kids are not. So that was generally the idea of put away. And so you didn't really get you didn't really get rid of it. You just kind of hit it. But this, this word in the Greek, and, I, and I, I put it in the Greek, it's apothemy. It literally means to get rid of. So Peter is saying, put away, get rid of. It doesn't mean hide it. It doesn't mean store it away. It doesn't mean, hey, just so people can't see it. Like so many of us did when we cleaned our rooms or our houses or, you know, we kind of put things away. Peter is saying, no, I need you to put it away. Get rid of it. Lay it aside would be another way of saying it. Get, I mean, it should not be a part of your life. So you need to get rid of the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and all slander. And those are some powerful words in that list. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, malice, all the things that tend to what? Tear apart the church. Because again, this, this passage is not, this whole book is not written to unbelievers. This book is written to the church the church that's all over Asia, to encourage them, to lift them up. And he's like, look, if you want to have a healthy church, if you want to be a holy people, if you want to be this living stone, remember the good news is preaching, you've got to put these things away. Because malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, they will tear you down. They will tear you apart. And we all know that. We've all experienced at least once in our life something in that phrase, something in that list. It's happened to us, or maybe we've been the person that's done it. And we walk away and just the pain that that caused or the pain that we felt from those things. And so Peter's saying, look, you've got to put this away. You've got to get rid of it. This isn't just slide it under the bed or throw it in the closet, but to get rid of it. And, and I wanted you guys to see in Ephesians chapter 4, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and 24, this is the exact same language. He says, I'm going to actually start in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The exact same language that Peter's using last week and this week is the same language that Paul uses to the letter to the Ephesians. Sorry. He said, assuming you've heard Jesus, right? He says, to put, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holy. And so this idea of put away, both Peter and Paul use it with our old self, putting it off, putting it away, renewing ourselves, putting on this new creation. You know, it's kind of like that. You've got to put on this new suit, this new identity, because you're something new in Christ. You're a living stone in Christ. You become a holy people. He says, like newborn infants going on. Like newborn infants. Sorry, the rest of your notes I, I had in there. This, is, this command is not a suggestion. This is a 24-7, 365 days a year battle, Right? This, this putting away the things, it's not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, maybe you should do this. Maybe it'll be better. No, it's, it's saying you've got to put these things away. 
And guys, it's a battle. We're, like, it's, we're never going to be perfect. It's never just going to be, all right, I've arrived. This is something every single day we have to get up and say, you know what? I'm not my old self. I've put away my old self. I'm this new person. And you're going to battle this 365, 24-7, putting away those things. Because whatever is in that list that you've battled with or struggled with, they, they creep up. They come up. And you have to consciously make that effort and this battle to put those things away. Now, verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter goes on with this this imagery of of the same way that a baby, an infant, cries out to be fed. We should cry out. We should long for spiritual milk. In your notes, I put our hearts and souls should cry out for spiritual things. Man, what do we long for? What do we long for? What do you long for? What do I long for? What do we cry out for? Do, are we crying out? Are we longing for spiritual milk? That our salvation may continue to grow? Or do we long for the things of this world? What do you cry out for? This is a huge, huge statement. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That is a huge statement. Because you can't crave something you've never tasted. Right? We cannot crave something we've never tasted. If we've never tasted the goodness of God, if we've never tasted that spiritual milk, you can never possibly crave something you haven't tasted. Everybody in this room has something that they crave, something they enjoy, something that they love to eat. Right? And all the cravings are different. In fact, some of the cravings in this room, I've probably never tasted some of the things that you crave. And likewise, for me, man, the thing I crave this time of year the most is a mango. Ooh, fresh off a mango. I don't know what they sell you in America in the stores, but it's not a mango. Okay, I don't know if they make it in a lab or I don't know. But it's I'm, I'm telling you. A fresh mango off of the mango tree that you went out and picked and peeled. There is nothing like it in the world. I crave that. I crave it. Karen bought a couple mangoes from Aldi the other day. And we ate them and they were okay. But man, they were not mangoes. And now I wouldn't expect you guys to understand that craving. Because you have most of you in the room haven't had that. Right? I remember we were, we were talking about traveling. I was talking about Willard, and he talked about when he and Flash and somebody else went down south on their motorcycles back in the day when they were adventurous. Although he's still adventurous because he went to Africa. And he talked about those teeny little sweet bananas. And he's like, man, I could just eat bunches and bunches of them. Right? But you, don't, you can't find those in America. They, like, they don't exist. And you, you, there's these things that we just crave Right? And I'm sure all of you have something that maybe your wife makes or, or you make and you just crave it. Right? But in this picture that Peter paints for us, right? Like a newborn infant longs for spiritual milk to grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's reminding us if you haven't tasted God's goodness, if you've never spent time with God, you simply cannot crave what you have not tasted. We can talk about it till we're blue in the face. We can teach about it. But if we're not willing to indulge, if we're not willing to taste, if we're not willing to eat it, you can't crave it. You cannot crave what you have not tasted. 
That's a huge, huge statement. So Peter goes on, he says, so then as you come to him, basically he's saying this is a daily personal relationship as you come, right? Because we never arrive. As human beings, we'll never arrive. We will constantly be coming to the Lord, coming to the Lord, coming to the Lord. And every time we think we've arrived, we realize, oh my goodness, I still need to work on this. Or I'm still struggling with this. Or this is still a stumbling block. We will never arrive. The day that we've passed away or Jesus comes back, that will be a moment of arrival. But as human beings, we're always coming. It's this idea of this daily devotion, this daily, this daily battle walk that we're in. Right? It's a daily personal relationship. So he says, as you come to him, again, and I, and I start off with this, as a living stone. Rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so again, that imagery that God is this sculptor and he's walking along and he finds these stones and they're beautiful and they're precious and he chose them and he brings them into his house and he begins to just sculpt them and chisel them. That's us. We're, every single one of us, we're these living stones and we're each uniquely different. Yet we have some of the same qualities because we're believers. We follow God. We love God. And so as he's just in his house and he's just simply chiseling away and making things. Right? This living restore. We were rejected by men. The same way that Jesus was rejected by men. But in the sight of God, we're chosen and precious. He says, you yourself, like a living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. That word living stone, living is the word zeo, right? So we're living stones of those two blocks. We are to be living stone. Zeo is the word living in Greek. It means to be active, alive. We're not dormant. We're not just chilling. We're not just sitting back. We are active and alive. We're these living stones that are active and alive. And a stone is, believe it or not, in the Greek, a stone is a stone. There's no fancy word. There's no fancy translation. A stone is a stone. It literally says something to build on. Something to build on, right? So he says, hey, you're yourselves. You're these living stones to be built up as spiritual houses into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scriptures. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we're these living stones, this spiritual house that's being built on the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is Jesus. Jesus came and he was that cornerstone and he was precious and he's the foundation of everything. And we're these stones that are built on, built upon, built up on Christ. So it's almost like if you think of it as statue, like if you, if you ever go and see statues, right, they're always on a base. They're always on a platform. They're on something. Our base, our cornerstone, our platform, whatever term you want to use, it's Jesus. And the stone is placed on it, and God just begins to chisel us. And he reminds us, he's like, look, you guys are living houses, spiritual houses. You're to be a holy priesthood. And he quotes scripture, he says, he quotes that scripture, then he says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. This redefines the very definition of the temple because we are the temple. This building is just a place that we come, but this building is not active. This building is not alive. This building is not growing. This building does not move because we have become the temple. The Holy Spirit now lives in us. We no longer have to go to a temple. We never have to longer go to a priest and be prayed for because the Spirit is in us. It's living. We've become a living temple, a royal priesthood. That's freaky. We're all priests. We all have responsibility. We all have requirements. That's why he gave us spiritual gifts, right? He said, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that he may reclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. I'm sure none of you know that song, but Charlie Hall has a song. Into marvelous light I'm running, out of darkness and out of shame. I love that song, right? Out of darkness, out of shame, into marvelous light we're running. That's exactly what he calls them to. He says, you've been called out of darkness into this marvelous light. You're a priesthood. You're a holy nation. He has redefined the temple. We are the temple. We are the church. We are called royal priests. That is why we have spiritual gifts, so we can serve. So he gives us these spiritual gifts because we're this holy nation, because we're priesthood, so what we can do with them so we can serve. And why do we serve? Because we're proclaiming the excellence of him. He called us out of darkness into marvelous light. He's like, you're going to proclaim his excellence. And so Peter very much understands the church has become the new Israel. Peter gets it. Paul gets it. Israel has been replaced for a moment in history. God chose Israel to be the chosen people. God chose the Levites to be the priesthood. And they rejected it. They rejected the cornerstone. And because of that, it became a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And so God said, okay. You've rejected me. I'm your stumbling. I'm your rock of offense. I have this new plan, which he knew all along. He's like, I'm going to use the church. And the church is going to be the new Israel. And the Holy Spirit's going to live in everyone. And everyone will be accountable. And everyone will have spiritual gifts. And you're literally going to be a living temple that goes out and is everywhere. No longer does the world have to come to Jerusalem to worship. We go out so they can worship God. Because where two or three are gathered together, there the church is. So why it's so important that we go out and make disciples. Because we're the temple. And the Spirit's living in us. And we're these royal priests. And we have these gifts. And so we go out so the world can worship. Think about that for a second. In Peter's day, in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, what did everyone have to do once a year, if not twice a year? They had to come to Jerusalem. They had to worship at Jerusalem. The Muslims still teach that. You've got to go to Mecca. You've got to worship at Mecca, right? You have to go to a place. And God says, no, it's so much bigger than a place. He's like, I am living. I am active. I am the king and the author of this world. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to put something in you. And you're going to go. That's why when Jesus went up to heaven, he said, go and make disciples. Because they no longer had to come to the temple. Now, that's not to say we don't come together and worship like we're doing right now. That's not to say we don't come together and pray for each other, encourage each other. Of course we do that. We see that all throughout Acts. The church gets together on a regular basis, and they eat, and they pray, and they fellowship, and they have community, and they have communion. But we are the new Israel. 
We are a royal race, a royal priesthood. We've been adopted into his family. You and I, as believers, have been adopted into God's family, and we become these very definitions. And that's why Peter's like, it's so important for you to live this holy life, because you're being watched. You're being evaluated. You are just like the Levites now. You're this chosen race. You're a priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're without excuse. And if you've tasted God and you see him, you should be craving those things to grow into your salvation. You should be craving those things. You should want to use your spiritual gifts to proclaim the excellent of him who called you out of darkness. This morning, Willard and I were, were talking early this morning before anyone was here and we're talking about the daily reading. And Willard's like way ahead of us. He's like in Joshua. Uh, he just gets up at 3 a.m. and reads because he can't sleep. So, well, yeah, why not? Read the Bible. That's a good plan. But what I loved is we started talking about Bible stories, right? And we talked about as, as, as church, we tell the kids a version of the Bible story. We generally soften it. Appropriately, kids five, six, seven probably don't need to hear the whole story. But I think one thing that we failed to do in the church is we never told the rest of the story. Paul Harvey would be ashamed of us, you know. Now you know the rest of the story. We don't do that. We tell the stories and we soften God and we only show one aspect of God. His deliverance, his grace and his mercy. But throughout the Bible, if you tell the rest of the story, there is always a consequence. And unfortunately, that consequence normally ends with somebody losing life or being destroyed. And I think we've skewed our, our, our version of God because we, we never told the rest of the story to our young people. We never showed them that there's a consequence. I mean, you guys, we wonder why people believe that there's no hell and that a loving God would only save people. But think about the way we've taught people. If you're in your 20s, and you grew up in the church with every single Sunday school story that most of us have told. And you hear just the salvation and you don't hear the rest of the story. What happened after David killed the, the giant? What happened after Daniel got out of the lion's den? If you don't hear the rest of the story, what happened after the walls of Jericho came down? Why would you think God would be a punishing God? Why would you think there's a consequence? Because we haven't taught it. I mean, I get why this younger generation buys in to that there's no consequence. It's the world we live in. It's the generation that we're teaching. And, and unfortunately, in some ways, it's what we've... Act, well, I don't think we did it on purpose, but we taught it in the Bible. It's almost like we teach the stories, and then at sixth grade, we should probably start over and teach the stories again. And be like, hey, now that you're a little bit more mature, now you're a little bit older, we want to tell you the rest of the story. Yeah, because they, they didn't end pretty. There were some consequences. Because God is a loving, merciful, grace God, but he's also just. Which is why, I, I, and I'm, the whole point of that is this whole idea that he called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. I think we forget that we were in darkness. I think we forget that we were dead in our sins. I think we forget we were called out of that darkness into marvelous light. Because we've grown up hearing one side of the story, or we've grown up saying, hey, I'm, I'm good enough, and I, I'm a good person, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, yet we were in darkness. Why? Because without Jesus, we were dead. And that's exactly what he says next in this verse. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. And so the whole segue of that whole example is for verse 10. Peter's like, look, before God, you were nothing. Before God, you were orphans. You were not a people. We literally had nothing. We had no hope. We had no joy. We had no peace. We had no love. Sure, those are the things of the world, but those wither and fade. And he just said that last week, or we talked about that last week. It's just like the grass of the field, it withers, it fades, it dies. All the things of the world that you may have put your hope in, they will go away. He's like, you were called out of darkness into marvelous light. Why were you called out of darkness? Because you were once not a people. Guys, before Christ, we are not a people. The only identity in this whole world that matters, the only nationality that matters is being God's chosen people. Without God, you are literally not a people. Yes, you were an American. Yes, you were a, a human being. But without God in your life, you're not a people. The very presence of God is not in you. And when you stand before God and when you die, you go to the not a people place, which is hell. The very existence of nothing. The torment, the torture, the consequences of all our actions out of God's presence. The not a people go there. I know that's weird to just say it like that, but this is just a fact. He says, before that you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter if you're male or female, doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter where you came from, you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus came He gave us mercy. He gave us grace. He saved us. And in doing so, he allowed us to have the Holy Spirit that lives in us so we can be the chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're no longer not a people. We are now God's people. Notice it. it, That's all it says. It doesn't say now you're Israel. It doesn't say now you're French or German or whatever. It just says you're simply you're God's people. You are now a part of God's country. You're God's people. You belong to Him. You've been bought with the price. You have received that mercy. So He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wages war against your soul. So he's bringing this all back together. What we looked at, what we started with last week in the very beginning, uh, middle of chapter one, all the way here, he's wrapping it all up. He's getting ready to, to move on to a new subject, right? He's like, you were called to marvelous light. You were called out of darkness. You're now a people. You're God's people. You've been given mercy. So I'm urging you. And he reminds us our place in this world. We're sojourners and exiles. This is not where we belong. So in your notes, if, if you got lost there towards the end, the church has become the new Israel. Before God, we were orphans. We were nothing. We were not a people, whatever you want to say. I said, and we had nothing. But now we are God's people and we have mercy. So we go. Paul, Peter again reminds us, this is very simple. We are exiles and sojourners. This is not where we belong. He says, I urge you as soldiers, people that travel, people that move, that people that don't have a home and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. The only war 
according to scriptures that we are in, is the war for our souls. It's a daily battle. It's why we have to, that's why he said, so when you come, it's this daily thing. As we come to him, you're a living stone. You're being built up like a house. You're a royal priesthood. Why? Because we are in war. We are in war. But the war is for our souls. The war is either to be God's people or not a people. The war is to either live forever in God's presence and his goodness at the wedding feast, at the table, or away from all that. And darkness and strife, slander and malice, deceit, all the things that he said to turn away from. We are at war, but the only war that we're at is for our souls. And there are people all around this world, this country, that have never heard the good news, that have never been told about Jesus, that don't know they're at war, that don't know that they're not a people, that don't know that God loves them, that don't know how to have that peace. And we're called to go and tell them. And again, they're everywhere. They're in our neighborhoods. They're in our communities. They're in our school systems. They're in your places of work. And obviously, you can keep going further and further and further. As we get out of this country, the percentage of people that are unreached becomes less and less and less to the fact that there are still thousands of people groups that are 0% reached. Thousands of people groups that don't even know the good news, that don't even know the Bible, that don't even know that God exists. And we, the temple, we, the royal priesthood, we, the sojourners and the exiles, we've got to go tell them whether it's praying for somebody, whether it's sending resources to someone, or whether it's just going ourselves. We've got to go tell them. But it starts right here, right now, right? It starts with that neighbor. I don't, I don't expect you to just walk out of here and be like, well, I'm getting on a plane. And if you've got a neighbor that you've never talked to, or you've got a neighbor that's next door that you know doesn't know the truth, start there. Invite them over for dinner. Have a conversation with them. Get to know them. Create a relationship so that you can speak into their life. We are without excuse. We've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. And we have to tell others that. So he said, I, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may say your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we'll stop there because that really goes into this next passage about submission to authority. Verse 12 really should be with that. But he's like, look, keep your conduct honorable in the world. People are going to speak against you. Evildoers are going to speak against you. They're going to come against you. But be honorable so that your deeds, your actions, your words will glorify God. Not just now, but on the day of visitation, the day when God returns, the day when when each one of us stand before the Lord for our actions. For our actions. So I thought this morning, or the last two weeks, just a perfect way to end this is communion. Right? Communion is a time where we come before the throne. Communion is a time where we remember what God did for us. Communion is a time where we confess what we've been battling with, with the things that we haven't put away, the things that we haven't got rid of, the things that we're not fleeing from. Or abstaining from, as Peter says. Communion is a time to just confess those things and lay them at God's feet to ask for forgiveness, to ask for help. 
It's a time to remember that we were not God's people and now we are. That we didn't have mercy and now we do. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to have communion. And this morning is going to be, we've done this this way before, but it may be different. We're not, I'm not going to lead you in communion. I'm not going to read the verse and pray the prayer. And we're all going to do it together. We're going to let this be your time. And I, and I chose that on purpose, not because I don't want to lead you, but because each one of us is on a different journey. Each one of us is in a different place. And I wanted you just to have time, especially as this year has just begun, just to be before the throne, be in God's presence, and just say, I'm sorry, or thank you, or praise him, or whatever it is you need to say. So at our church, communion table is open to all who have a relationship with Jesus You do not have to be a member of Sycamore Grove to participate in communion, but we do ask that you have a relationship with Jesus. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, then we ask you not to participate. As far as whether you've been baptized or not, we leave that up to the moms and dads. So you kids probably know what you're allowed to do. If you're not, look at mom and dad and ask them. Great conversation for later today, maybe, in the home. But we leave that to you, the parents. But we're just going to play some scripture and music on the screen. It's, it's from that new album by Michael W. Smith, Still. And it's literally just music and scripture that's going to be read over you. And we're just going to be...